You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm super excited to talk to Philip Moyer today about building successful industry go-to-market teams. Now, as you folks may know, that we have been on this path of understanding how very experienced people went through building extremely successful go-to-market teams. And some of those folks came up from sales, some came from marketing, some came from customer success, some came from business development. But the truly the future go-to-market exec needs to actually understand all four pieces or all four parts of their revenue pie. And so for that, I'm grateful that folks are going to spend some time with us and talking about how to build successful industry go-to-market teams. So Philip, welcome to the show. Asher, thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. Well, Philip, before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are? Sure. So I'm what's called the Vice President of Strategic Industries here at Google, which I oversee the strategic industry go-to-market teams here in North America for Google. Prior to this, I was at Amazon. I was running their financial services industry teams. I had spent some time in venture capital, and I also uh, ran a publicly traded company called Edgar Online in the financial industry. And before that, I was at Microsoft for about 15 years, where I ran professional services industries. I ran their services businesses. I started as a technical person a long time ago. I started as a software developer for nuclear submarines. Wow. So from nuclear summaries to tech, huh? that must be quite the journey. It, it has been. It has been. But, uh, you know, and it, it's given me a pretty broad perspective in, in industries in general. So fantastic. All right. Let's dive into this topic. So we had had a couple of folks that have given us an idea of what does do industry teams do? Right. And we actually had one of your colleagues, you know, like that tell us a little bit about industry teams and building industry teams. And she told me that, like, you know, you sometimes bring on like CEOs that are on sabbatical to like help give you the domain knowledge, help train the teams, help kind of build it from the product side. Right. Now, we're going to talk about the other part of that pie, which is on the go to market side. And so give us a little bit of when you think about industry go to market teams, what should people take away from that? Sure. So I always have to start with the customer in mind and and start with the end in mind and their perspective. First of all, I would tell you that every single industry, whether or not you're in manufacturing, whether or not you're in financial services, whether or not you're in retail, whether or not you're in consulting, every industry is facing some form of disruption. Every industry has legacy systems. Every industry has too much disconnected data and not enough insights. And every industry is competing for talent to solve these problems. Now, if you go in and, and are only talking at that level with customers, it's a lot, it's it's difficult to make progress with organizations. And so I spend a lot of time thinking before you start industry, really what makes an industry different. Now, I'll give you a couple examples. So first and foremost, I think there's there's three primary things that I think that you've got to think about when you're considering verticalizing your, your sales organization in terms of like what makes an industry unique. First is the market dynamics and how the companies actually get valued in the public markets. The second is the technology. And the third is really the ISVs and partners. So market dynamics, um, I'll give you a little sense of that. I always think about when I'm in, in the infrastructure space and in the, in the PaaS space, like a, in the cloud business, we have to think about literally the entire IT estate of our customers. 
And so I start with what is the total addressable market in each industry? Retailers in CPG are generally spend about two to 5% of their revenues on IT, whereas the telco space will spend six to 9% and financial services is generally the biggest spender, five to 11%. And then healthcare is down around three to six. And so you have to kind of get a sense of like what element of the customer's business is actually technology that you're selling into. The second thing that I think a lot about is, you know, what are the, the metrics that they get valued on? Retailers, obviously, is just straight up revenue growth and inventory turn. Yep. Telco is average revenue per user that you've got to think about. Financial services is tangible book value. And then healthcare is outcomes and reimbursement. And so in each one of these things, you've got to, you know, in the market dynamic side, you've got to kind of think about what is what does your customer get measured on and how much are they willing to spend against those measurements on technology? Now, in the technology space, I would tell you that each one of these organizations, and this is a really critical element in go-to-market with any technology company, there are unique systems of record in each industry. And the unique systems of records are what everything is tethered on. It's how the customer gets paid. So, you know, in supply chain and e-commerce is in retail, core banking systems or actuarial systems and claims processing and financial services, personal health records inside of healthcare, clinical systems, population health management, and then in telco, things like the OSS, VRAN, network slicing and radio placement are how are really the core systems. And each one of these organizations, each one of these industries also have unique data sets that you have to be aware of. So market data inside of financial services is very different than population health data inside of healthcare. Yep. And then the tech and regulatory environment, you know, in telco, the number one thing right now in the United States is around ITAR, whereas financial services is around OCC and SEC requirements and healthcare is around, is really around HIPAA. And in retail, it's around, really around uh, PCI data and, you know, and basically the, the transaction data. So in the technology space, you really have to be aware of what are those kind of those systems of records and your teams and yourself, you have to think, you have to understand that the customer's first and foremost job is to run those systems of record. And then the last thing I would tell you is that is, as I mentioned, is the ISVs and partners. So, you know, in retail, SAP is, is significant as it is in manufacturing. In financial services, I would tell you that things like FIS, you know, Profile and Jack Henry and Duck Creek and Pershing, Eagle System and, and FICO, those are the predominant vendors. Whereas in healthcare, Epic and Meditech and Cerner, Telco, Ericsson, Amdocs, Nokia, each one of these industries, as you think about it, you think through, okay, how is my customer being measured? What's the dynamics of the industry? What are the things that they're tethered to that they absolutely have to use to run their business? And then who are the partners that that we, you need to interface to and work with to be able to make these organizations successful? That was fantastic. I, I love how you broke it down and just gave people a framework, right? And to summarize that thing, hmm. one of my mentors told me that like, you should think of this as the supply chain of a dollar. Like how does a single dollar just roam around this ecosystem? And then you'll know how to to navigate this and then what you rightly said, which is what is the customer looking to accomplish and tie yourself to that. And then just keep in mind the regulatory processes. And early on, like when PACI and PADSS were being launched, I was actually fortunate enough to be part of the payments industry. And we were working credit card payments for actually Microsoft Dynamics, by the way. And, and for great things, we were the only vendor that had provided an integrated product, right? And But we had to like understand and the, like, again, what was interesting is when a compliance issue hits, you actually have to rewrite code. That's why it's painful. It's not that you have to retweak your go-to-market because that's just messaging, right? Yeah. But but you have to rewrite code because some values have to be obfuscated. This may be too techy for this podcast, but I'm sharing this for the listeners because the impact of not staying on top of regulatory or compliance issues can be devastating. 
Oh, it's, it's huge. You know, in financial services, some of them, what we call kind of systemically important financial institutions that are designated by each government around the world. One of the requirements is that within 48 hours, any any security breach has to be has to be reported back to the regulatory authority. Now, if you are a provider of technology and it takes you 72 hours to report to your customer yep. that a security breach has occurred, customers will sometimes say you're putting me in breach of, of you know, federal regulators. So you really have to be, whereas in the healthcare industry, the time frame to be able to report is different. In the telco space, you know, who is allowed to work on what systems is also highly regulated. So you really have to kind of wrap your head around each one of the, the individual industries and the perspective that your customer has, you know, what they have to report to, what, you know, how they how they report the dollar and how the dollar, as you said, flows through and, and is also governed yes. inside of the organization. Yeah. I love that you're a systems thinker as well, because they do. I'm, I'm sure as we're talking, at least I can visualize like all these systems, like the CRM, the ERP, the financial system, all these other systems, like, you know, you have, you can just kind of see a record kind of floating through, but that just may be the techie in us. I, I would tell you that I, I like to tell any seller that when you, when they approach a customer, that customer wakes up every single morning with a whole bunch of systems that they're already worried about. Yes. They're sitting in their head that they're like, how am I going to upgrade this system? Yes. How am I going to keep this one running? This one had a problem yesterday. And so yes. come from the perspective of all the things that a customer is already running yes. um, before you start yes. introducing new things. Yes. I'm really glad you actually said that too, because the, for the early stage go-to-market leaders that are listening to this, right? You got to make sure that your sellers don't create work for executives because mm-hmm. that's not a valuable use of time. You have to like come from the angle of how do I take work away from executives? And that may require spending time with them. And I think if you approach it from the right angle, the executives actually appreciate that because they're getting so they're getting hit up by so many other vendors that are just trying to do me, 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 me. And they're focusing on kind of creating more work for them. Yeah, I would tell you that it's getting your first sale is the hardest thing with yeah. some of these organizations, especially highly regulated organizations. Yeah. And after that first sale, after you've run the gauntlet of the security architecture team, and after you've run the regulatory team, and after you've run the purchasing team, and after you've yeah. run the infrastructure team, suddenly you become the easy button for everyone else inside of that organization. So literally just getting that first sale, yes. not the biggest sale, but the first sale becomes yes. an easy button for everything else for you. Because you once you learn that that path to a decision, and you make it easy for that customer to be able to make more decisions for you. That's really where you start seeing your growth in a lot of these regulated industries. Fantastic. All right, let's move to the next section, right? How do you break down an industry go-to-market business focus? You know, so I have kind of a five major areas that I think about for, for go-to-market um, focus. First is selecting the customers. The second is building the team. The third is your vision. The fourth is obviously the technical and security landscape. And the last is the repeatability. And so let me give you a little bit of respect on picking the customers. I've seen a lot of industry go-to-market focuses. I've seen organizations whipsaw back and forth in terms of how they select customers, when they verticalize, how far they go in verticalization. And I would tell you that you should always view a, an industry um, verticalization as a two to three year journey for your organization. I really encourage, and I've seen organizations go wholesale industry, and then switch back to wholesale geography. It can whipsaw organizations. And so I would tell you that when you're starting out, don't verticalize everything. Instead, pick just the top 10 in each one of the critical areas that you think that you have a vertical message in. And you can say retail, but recognize that you might also mean grocery and fashion 
or in financial services? Do you mean banking, capital markets, and insurance? But I would tell you that really you should ideally to start off, maybe just target the top 10 organizations that you think you can make progress in by industry. Obviously, you try to cluster because if you take your sales teams and you strap them with a customer that you've never sold to before, these big customers take time. And so you need to be able to keep your sales reps, you know, your sales teams motivated to be able to get get yep. an outcome with the customer. And so if you can cluster, you know, two or three customers for these vertical sales teams, it really helps you in terms of making sure that your, your sales teams are able to get some success, make their quota and make a little progress. They're professionals. They want to make a number. They want to make sales. So make sure they have enough opportunities. I would add in what I call kind of startups or disruptors and digital natives and ISVs. Yep. They're organizations that can move faster. And so like when I think about financial services, I, I think about, you know, if you've got a large bank, you might, or, you know, like a, a Goldman Sachs, you might want to also have a Bloomberg in there. You might want to have, a, you know, Moody's, an organization that basically, you know, moves a little bit quicker, that's not as large. And so make sure that you're thinking about both the lighthouse customers as well as the, the a handful of startups and a handful of, of organizations that also sell into the industry that you might be able to sell to. In the building the team, I encourage organizations, I mean, I would tell you that we really look to try to take individuals from both inside the organization and from outside the organization. So you want to bring in some industry talent, people that have deep industry experience, that have Rolodexes, that's still a word, you know, basically create contact lists inside of industry and mix them in with your sales teams. The people that know how to sell your product, yes. what you're trying to do is combine together some people that understand selling to the industry and the people that also understand how selling your product. And so I don't ever consider an or. I always want to try and do an and because that's where magic happens is, is bringing that, that value proposition together for that industry and for that customer. I would tell you there's four major roles, the sales, technical people, solutions people, and I would call it kind of partner people and services, obviously, in the background. But I would tell you the, the partners, solutions, technical and sales are critical roles. And bring in senior role models like really, really individuals that have been selling into the industry for a long time that understand what's worked, what hasn't worked. You know, it's been interesting to me when you bring in individuals that have been selling into in, into the financial services industry that understand, you know, the challenges of being able to move a market data infrastructure or moving a risk system. And so you do want to invest in some senior talent when you're going after an industry that's been there, done it, seen what's worked, what hasn't worked in that when you build your team. Now, the industry and vision landscape, we talked about, we touched on this a little bit in the beginning. Uh -huh. You really have got to give your, your sellers the vision for what is your, the value prop. Like, what are you selling into? Yep. And what is that value prop? Invest in that. Spend time with your customers. Hear back from the customers that you have in banking. Hear back from the hospital customers. Hear back from the retailers. Why did you buy my product, you know, in your industry? And so invest in that, learn it. I love the I, what you mentioned about bringing, making an advisory board. I think that that's really important um, as well. So if you can get a few customers that are clustered in CPG, as an example, or a few clusters that are in insurance yep. that, that help you guide, I think that's really important. I, I just had a quick question on the difference between a technical role and a solutions role, just so that we give the audience an idea of like how you define them. Sure. So I would say, you know, a technical role might be, okay, this is how we have to interface. This is what the actual technical requirements are for ITAR yep. inside of the telco space. And this is how you have to interface on your customer 360 um, data platform to your OSS or BSS. The solutions um, role is a little bit more of a combination of saying, you here are partners that will help you with customer 360. Here's how we've done customer 360 rapidly in other organizations. 
And so it's a combination. The solutions role sits right in between a salesperson and between a technical person where they're able to say, okay. hey, here's how you repeatedly make progress inside of a telco or repeatedly make progress you know, with a financial services firm. So they assemble repeatability is how I think about a solutions person. Could they be the same person in the beginning or are you like, no, when you, if you're going to go do this, there's so much to learn about the ecosystem that you need to get a solutions person that's just focused on like solving the problem. And then the technical person is just identifying the problem. You know, it's a great question. The lightest way, way to start an industry is to get some senior sellers and a handful of senior technical people that make some wins and discover repeatability. And they start to capture it into things that they can give to other customers. Yep. And so I would tell you that, you know, a lot of organizations will just simply start with, you know, senior technical, senior salesperson and say, hey, capture your learnings into a playbook that you would give to another seller. And over time, those sellers and those technical people will say, you know, we need to do a better job with, I don't know, Bloomberg as an example, or we need to do a better job with Epic or Cerner. Yep. And so that's where you start to coalesce into when you need to start dedicating people to make the progress with, with some of the systems of records or make the progress in terms of a potentially even having your, your company write lines of code that are unique to that industry. The solutions person is able to kind of, I'll say, kind of program manage that better than a, a sales or a traditional technical yes. person. Yes, I right agree. I guess I have to ask you this question because, you know, when you sell to like B2B companies or let's call it tech companies selling to other tech companies, is there's a very camaraderie to sale, you know, there's very there's a very forgiving environment, right? But, and that's why the go-to-market messaging is like maybe like 50 steps ahead of the actual product, right? But I from what you're saying, like the product's got to be somewhere before you can actually enter these in, in vertical markets or indus industries or not. I would love some guidance on, the, on that piece. It's, uh, you know, the wonderful thing about customers is you spend time with them. They'll tell you about both the problems and, and the benefits of your, of your product. And so you'll find oftentimes that, you know, when you're selling into, when you're selling to, unless you're a pure vertical oriented yes. company, like I'm just going to sell loyal customer loyalty to retailers. But if you're providing something that's a little bit horizontal, you spend some time with, with the customer sets and understand why you're winning in certain areas and why you're not winning. You know, there was, there are something like a, I'll give you an example. Great example is um, FINRA requirements. You know, yep. some organizations will not be able to adhere to FINRA requirements because you need to be able to achieve kind of write yep. once, read many times. But you may be winning all the time over in the insurance space, which doesn't have that kind of regulatory requirement, you know, around a particular technology. And so you are able to really address the learning from your from an insurance customer why they're buying and learning from a FINRA regulated customer why they're not buying will help you then refine, you know, what your what your what is good about your product and what the shortcomings are. So I, with a lot of horizontal companies. They start off horizontal, they sell to lots of industries, and they, they have to listen really hard to their customers. And when you start listening to your customers, each one of the customers, as I mentioned, is going to have a different reason in their industry for buying your product. And that's what you start capitalizing on. You capture it, you listen more, and you say, okay, if I did these three more features, I could capture more of the market. If I added in support for this partner, I could capture more of the market. And that's really where you start. Yep. When you talk to Lori Mitchell Keller, her team is really discovering and scaling you know, and program managing how do we do this repeatedly at scale and capture as much of the marketplace as that, you know, that an organization that can with their product? Yeah, someday we're going to have the, both of you on the same podcast, maybe as a follow on to this, because it's really cool. And for the listeners, right, 
you have to listen to Laurie Keller's podcast that was launched maybe a couple a few months ago, and then listen to this. If if you listen to this, definitely go listen to that too. Because and, and the reason why I say this is when you listen to that one, you'll see that she actually pauses and does not actually answer the go-to-market questions. And then that's how we got connected to this podcast and with Philip, so that we wanted to kind of understand, like, well, she's got the product done. Like, why do you get the get the go-to-market built, right? And it's funny because if you listen to the podcast, you'll think that she's a salesperson. <laughs> Agreed. You know, I would say Lori's a great solutions person. And, you know, what I would yes. tell you is that a great solutions person is able to pick up patterns. Well, first of all, is able to understand the total addressable market because sometimes the sell, your sellers won't see the forest for the trees. But, you know, a great solutions person picks out the overall market and is able to prioritize and then look for patterns where we're winning, why we're not, and what can we capitalize on quickly to accelerate even more sellers. And the sellers, we should be establishing wins, talking the customer's language, be bringing out the bringing the patterns. Lori's team is is seeing discovering new patterns, but also taking other patterns that have been discovered as rapidly as possible into the customers in their language. So they, they go hand in hand. So one thing we haven't spoken about is leveraging marketing, right? Mm-hmm. And and in industry marketing, I want to say the same as right, is just non-industry marketing, but again. Given all the compliance that you have to go through from a product perspective, I'm assuming there's compliance around marketing efforts as well. There, there absolutely is. If you speak in terms of, I'll call it kind of um, risk and profitability to a healthcare organization, it sounds tone deaf. You know, you speak in terms of outcomes and proving care to a healthcare organization. You know, I would, and so I would say, you know, at a, at a high level of messaging, I talked about this a little bit, is understanding the dynamics and also the, the measurements, kind of the things even that the analysts, um, the financial analysts that look at these companies, yep. the language that they speak in, the language that the actual, you know, the individuals inside of the organizations talk in, you know, an associate at Home Depot speaks very differently than a portfolio manager at a at a Goldman Sachs, you know, as an example. And so I would tell you is that understanding that the language yep. and the, I'll call it kind of the, the, the key success factors that these organizations um, think in on a day-to-day basis is really critical. And so from a top level marketing perspective, when you arrive at somebody's website, you want to see that they have, that they understand how you're being measured and, and what your goals are and, and the ethos of your company and even the, you know, the ethos of your industry. So it starts with that kind of messaging. I really, really tell people that you have to be brutally honest in marketing yep. as to whether or not you're just, you're saying something that could be said to any industry or whether or not you're actually saying something that is meaningful to that industry. Let me give you, let me give you a great example. So I mentioned at the very top of the podcast every single industry has disconnected data, yep. okay? So if I just say, hey, we're going to help you coalesce your disconnected data, yes, I could be talking to a bank, I could be talking to a manufacturer. It really isn't meaningful. But if I say to you, listen, I'm going to help you manage populations of health and be able to identify new treatments proactively to take to the populations that are under your care. And as a result, we're going to see longer term, better outcomes with individuals that have the following conditions. That is meaningful to a to a healthcare organization. Like actually identifying how you're going to approve one of their metrics is critical. And I really, really encourage sellers not to talk in generic, uh, generic language. You know, like we're going to help you retire a legacy system or we're going to help you disrupt or we're going to help you you know, we're going to help you connect data. That's meaningless. Everyone says those things. So yes. speak in the customer's language with marketing. 
The last area I would tell you is, you know, getting the lighthouse wins and really representing those lighthouse wins so that other organizations are, are willing to take the same risk. I mean, I think it's a critical element for, for marketing organization is holding up the hard customers, the really difficult, the, the mega banks, the large scale healthcare organizations, the, the payers, the big payers. Those are the ones basically that kind of say to the rest of the industry, hey, if this organization is able to do it, others should be able to do it. And so with marketing, speak in their language, make sure your your references are legit and just stay away from generic discussions. It, it really will help you. It gives you the cred you need to be successful in that industry. So as you were saying this, right, I'm just visualizing because you made a really awesome recommendation. If you're starting out, take a few senior sellers the people that are willing to take a bet on having a large impact, right? And then take a couple of technical folks, right? So like, that's like the startup phase, quote unquote, right? And then what happens in the mid phase? Like, how should people think about resourcing in the mid phase? And then let's talk about scale phase. Then how should people think about, about resources in the scale phase? Sure. So after you've got the, you know, the sellers and, the, and a few technical people, your next step is, is the partners. You need to do a really good job of managing the other systems, you know, the other systems that are important to your customer. And so I, I really very early on in the process encourage the management of some of the critical partners inside of the organization and having you know, partner managers. So if you're a software company that's trying to take your product to marketplace in a particular industry, you should talk to the systems integrators, the Deloitte's, the Accenture's, the TCS's and, and see whether or not you can you can ride along with them in terms of taking your product to marketplace. They're the organizations that are talking in these industries every single day at the scene your most level. So make sure that you're you're fitting in with the trusted advisors of these organizations and making sure you're doing a good job of making your product easy to be a part of their solutions and their recommendations. The next area as well is in your services organizations. After you sell something, you got to execute. So you better have talent that's going to be able to interface to Epic or be able to yep. interface into FIS profile or be able to interface into or going to be able to implement systems in the form of, you know, that have that are HIPAA compliant. And then I would tell you Along the way, what you'll start to get as well is that in the actual go-to-market organization, I would tell you, is this repeatable function of taking what's coming out of your product teams and out of your solutions teams and then landing it repeatedly in your team and making sure you're doing it on a worldwide basis. You need somebody to, to really be able to match the vision with the execution and being able to say, okay, we're this in the retail store. We're talking to the people that are in loyalty. We're talking to the people that are in leakage, but we haven't gotten to the people that are in, in payments. And so having a framework, like by the third year, as you're thinking about scale across the world, you've got to be making sure that you're actually penetrating with all your yep. solutions, with your with your technical message, with your sales message, with your marketing message. You've got to be thinking about how do I penetrate on a worldwide basis uh, repeatedly. And so that's where you really start to add in those repeatable, I'll say the repeatability experts, which are kind of, we will sometimes call them kind of field solutions um, leaders that are kind of complementary to Lori's um, solution development team. As you think about services, right? Again, companies go through this, right? They're like, hey, we're going to do everything for you. And then they get to the, when they all develop a rapid implementation methodology, right? And, and they say, well, we'll get to you 80% of the way right out of the box. And the last 20% we'll get, we'll have to customize to you, right? Is our industry markets, right? Let's call them the ones that we've been discussing, right? Are they forgiving where, you know, you can say, well, you know, if you don't have it, as long as we have the compliance requirement met, We'll actually build the rest of it with you. Yeah, I would tell you that large financial institutions, large hospitals, each one of them have very bespoke compliance regimes. You know, in financial services, there's somewhere between 18 to 22 core requirements that an organization has to pass through. Some companies will have 17, some will have 25. And so generally, most of the large organizations have very large teams 
to be able to help customize products into their environment and their unique you know, compliance and regulatory regimes. And so short answer to your question is yes, they will work with you. Now, you really do have to show up, though, basically demonstrate an understanding of their industry and what 80% you're actually solving for them. So I would really encourage you not to kind of walk in and say we have the end to end, but we will work with you. So they will be forgiving. Yep. Yes. And one other way to do this for the folks that are listening that are a little bit early stage, showcase your team. Because yeah. if the team is seasoned, and even if there's a couple of people on the team that are seasoned, the customers just want to know that the people that we're trusting this project with Somebody who has been there, done that, is guarding the ship or, or steering the ship, and then everybody else can just get the work done. They all know like if every company solved everything all the time, they would all be start off at a billion dollars, you know? So <laughs> there would be no startups. Exactly. Yeah. Just demonstrate yeah. that you get it. You know, I mean, I keep saying they wake up every morning yeah. with a whole bunch of systems and yeah. issues that they got to deal with. Just show that you have respect for their yeah. where they're coming from. So agreed. What about like meeting up with, because it sounds like, you know, like, and it's it's interesting because every one of these industry go-to-market conversations I've had, or technically most of the folks that are like go-to-market operators, you're definitely one of them, right? It almost sounds like the fundamental unit that you need to solve for is getting a meeting because that's what everything clocks in, right? You get to connect with people, you get to like chat with them, you get to learn from the customers, you know? So in the industry worlds, right? Like in B2B tech, right? You go to Saster, you go to some of these like industry shows, right? I'm sorry, trade shows, if you want to call them, right? And we're done. But in, does each industry have their own like trade shows or, or because of compliance reasons, people like, no, we cannot do spend money like this. We cannot do that. Yeah, they do. I mean, you know, Mobile World Conference is coming up here in October. You've got Money 2020 in financial services. You know, you've got SIFMA, which is, you know, huge uh, banking kind of financial conference. You've got, you know, specific ones in the healthcare space. During COVID, not so much. You know, it's been hard to connect, I would say, in those conferences and really make progress in those conferences because they've been virtual. So you just don't get the networking opportunities. But I would tell you, I think that people still want to be able to connect with their industry peers. Yep. A great thing to do at those industry at those industry events is to try and get a speaking spot and really make sure that you're showing something that's differentiated and has produced value with a customer. I tell every single you know every single time we present at a um, one of these kind of industry conferences, I really encourage us to not be up there alone just talking about our product, but actually talking ideally with a customer on stage about progress that they've made. And so those are those are great opportunities as well. There's so many golden nuggets in this podcast. This is amazing because so many times people are lazy when call for speakers comes out. People just like delete those emails. Hmm. And and for the folks that are listening, you're now you're all execs, right? You have resources on the team that hmm. can literally have a talk or a framework for a talk ready that you just like copy paste and send it in and you can always tweak the topics because they're all going to come back to you and stuff, right? So take advantage of these call for speakers and don't delete them because that's literally like free marketing in a way. It is. And I have to tell you, people attend these conferences for a reason. Customers go there to get ideas. Yes. And I just, there is one thing that's sacrosanct for, to me about, about selling. And I did this as a, as a systems engineer. I learned this a long time ago when I was a systems engineer at Microsoft starting out there. And I still, to this day, do this. When I'm going in to meet a customer, I try to have two to three ideas that I can give them. And when you're on stage, you should be giving two to three unique ideas. 100%. And you know, your job in any single customer call where you're meeting a customer for the first time, or even you might be meeting them for the hundredth time or the tenth time, is to go in with an idea for how they can improve their business that you've thought through in their language 
those conferences are a great opportunity to be able to really broadcast ideas at a much broader, I'll say broader forum with a customer backing you up to give you credibility. So yeah, I, I do the work and and use the use the venue to your benefit. Yes, 100%, 100%. If you have a story and a unique point of view, say it over and over again exactly. and stick to the same talk track through the year. You don't have to do like you don't have to create the same talk, a talk track over and over again because you're trying to drive industry change, right? The industry mm-hmm. change is comes from like people, how they grow personally and professionally mm-hmm. and the companies that they work for and the, how those companies grow as well, right? Mm-hmm. If that's you, you're going to have to like talk about the story over and over again until you're blue the face. But it's going to take a while. So might as well do it. And it's, it's a lot of fun. You get to meet with other other speakers who are all going through industry, interesting journeys. And, you know, there, there's other opportunities that just come up. You just don't know in today's world. Agreed. Agreed. It's a great, a great opportunity to connect. And also, quite frankly, after you say it enough times, you become an expert. <laughs> well, by the way, there's one question I wanted to ask you from the earlier part of the podcast, and then we'll move into lessons learned is the, you know, you talked about like percentage of revenue that or percent of budget that companies spend. Is that something that you get from like analyst firms? Or is that you just call up like the top seven companies in each industry and just like ask them like how they're thinking about things or maybe both? Yeah, there there are a lot of sources for this data, and and there there is some disagreements between the data providers. You know, so whether or not it's Gartner, or whether or not it's Deloitte, you know, Deloitte does a great, you know, did a great industry review of IT recently. You'll find it from a lot of the consulting firms. McKinsey will put put out some of the IT spending data, but you really do need to think about this. And this is when I was in venture capital, I, I really I would lean hard on on founders on what is their true addressable market. Just because you're selling a loyalty application into retail doesn't mean that the entire retail industry is your addressable market. Yep. You know, how many how many companies actually buy, you know, loyalty and actually stand up unique, you know, loyalty programs? That's your addressable market. And so whatever you're selling, you know, really make sure that you understand how many people are actually buying. You know, I mean, when I'm in cloud, I've got to think about the entire IT estate. And so I do have to think about the entire IT budget, you know. Yes. And so we, we do look at the whole picture of everything that people are spending. But when I'm in something like an artificial intelligence marketplace or in a data marketplace or I'm in a specific, you know, application, I need to be really honest with myself about what they're spending by industry on that particular product or service. Perfect. So let's move to lessons learned. You know, like you're you're super experienced. You have a lot of diverse companies that you work for and and build stuff. Like, so what are your top three lessons learned that go to market executives that are listening to this can take away? So number one, I would tell you maybe some of the biggest mistakes I've seen when it comes to verticalization and the kind of industry focus is the lack of patience. And one of the reasons why people have a lack of patience is they experiment too large. I like people say fail fast, and I say fail small because then you can have lots of experiments. And so. First of all, have patience. But when you start your verticalization or industry journey, don't over verticalize your field teams. Like I've seen organizations just go, okay, we're gonna we're gonna break everything down into financial services, retail, and manufacturing. And then like, okay, well, what do we do with professional services firms like KPMG? Because they're, you know, or the legal firms. And so when you over verticalize too early, you don't get the results. It takes two to three years for a true industry strategy to get started. You know, the first year is you're, you're making the contact, you're starting to learn. Second year, you're starting to get some lighthouse wins. And by the third year, then you've got repeatability. Everything, you know, and your product is being evolved in a vertical way. So be prepared for a three-year journey at a minimum and really make sure that you're incremental each year in adding to your verticalization strategy. The second area I would tell you that is really critical is actually, I mentioned this multiple times, I'm just going to say it again. Take risk on industry talent, on senior industry talent. 
bring in a few people that set the pace, that set the tone, that talk in the language, that see know what great great looks like, and mix them in with your existing field. Don't replace your entire field, or don't you know have a, a set of elite people that only you know that are all from the outside. But do invest in some senior people that have been there and done it, and can tell you what's failed and what's successful, and have the context to walk you in, or can really quickly interface you to the right systems, or can really quickly get you through the compliance requirements. That will just save you so many months of work by versus a team that has never sold into a particular industry. The last, be brutally honest with yourself as to whether or not you actually are, are differentiating in this industry. Yep. Be really clear, speak in the customer's language. I've said this on, a, on multiple occasions. It drives me crazy when, when industry people come into me and just say, well, the customer's got lots of data sources that we need to bring together. <laughs> just that is such generic speak. And so I, I just have said it multiple times, speak and be honest about your value right to that industry. So, you know, do your algorithms and decrease Medicare fraud by 30%. Do you reduce telco truck rolls by 20%? Do you, are risk analytics, you know, 30% faster at night for FRTB in the financial services industry? Actually make your sellers say something that's specific to that industry that they do. Fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing this. And one super last question before we like wrap the podcast up is how should execs who are trying to navigate the super exec path, right? Like people that, I mean, they just look at yourself, right? You've basically been a VC, you've helped all these other companies, you've ran a publicly traded company, right? Early stage execs, as they're thinking about their super exec journey, are there any pointers there? And I say this because when you go ask people, right? Say, what's the number one piece of advice you've gotten? And people say, well, build relationships. I think that's important. Absolutely, right? We've talked a lot about it on this podcast too. But there's got to be other things that you have to stay consistent on as after you become a VP. Yeah. I would tell you that as you scale, when you're, you know, the larger the size organization, organizations can tend to talk a lot about their products because they focus on their products every single day, as opposed to the value you're creating for your customer. And so as a leader in any given situation, when a team comes into you and starts talking about an opportunity, really pushing that team, regardless of what stage it's at or how well we are or not well we know the customer, is pushing your team on the value they're creating for the customer. And Tethering yourself to that customer value will help you lead through all kinds of decision-making processes, whether or not it's like the quality of your sales team, how much you should charge for your product, or whether or not, you know, whether or not you should or should not be in a particular market. Keeping yourself tethered to that customer value helps you make the right kind of decisions at scale. Fantastic. All right. Is there a resource, like a book, a blog, a newsletter, or a website, or a video that you would recommend to our listeners? So two things, you're going to think this is this is crazy, but I'm a nit for, for writing and being really crisp and clear in writing. Okay. And so nice. I was given this as a, literally as a systems engineer a long time ago by, by a general manager, gentleman that I named John Mush that I have tremendous respect for, and it's called Elements of Style. And I encourage everyone that works for me to use that book because when you're writing an email today, a lot of people want to dump so much in there or writing a presentation. It's about writing concisely and communicating concisely. Yes. The podcast, I would tell you, I love Masters of Scale with Reid Hoffman. Yep. I think it really helps organizations think through each of the steps in the journey of scale. So I would I would encourage those those two things. Fantastic. Normally, I don't order books, but I'm, I'm checking this one thing out because I'm huge on copywriting, right? Because I just feel like everybody who's in sales has to understand marketing 
But if you cannot understand demand gen, which is very technical today, right? Just make sure that you understand copywriting because it brings shape to what you're trying to say. And it's, it's a, to me, it's a big differentiator. If somebody writes me a well-crafted email, I for sure am responding because that person took some time, right? And it's clear, exactly. crisp and stuff, stuff. Okay, fantastic. How about two or three people in B2B tech, either in go-to-market or data science that you recommend we bring onto the show? So three people that I really think you should talk to. Hamadou Dia. He is um, amazing in solution engineering for Google. Andrew Moore, who does our industry AIML here at Google. And I, you know, I've recently been spending a lot of time with C3. And I would encourage you, if you can, get a legend in the sales world, Tom Siebel from C3 or, or a member of his team would be wonderful to get bring on the on this podcast. Oh man. That would be that would truly be an honor. If we could get Tom on the podcast, I think that would make my 200 episode journey that I'm on with this podcast complete. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Fantastic. All right. I know you're super busy and I say this all the time. When you're going to reach out to an exec, please be specific because every exec wants to help. And we were actually talking about this before the podcast in my convo with Phil, that we have time, but we just can't help you if you're not specific. And we can't even route you to other people because you're not specific. So please be specific. But then on that note, Phil, if people wanted to reach out to you and connect with you and just ask a question, what would be the best way for them to do that? Best way is actually on LinkedIn. I'm on there a lot. I do respond. I'm under Philip Moyer with one L. So Perfect. Well, Phil, thank you so much for spending time with us. This was truly a blast and best of luck on your journey. Thank you very much, Ashwin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV. 